Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. And I'm Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories from the spaces where endowments and communities intersect. Because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we bring you the last installment of our special series, It Takes a Community. Oh, is it already that time? It is. Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal of Nahewin have worked hard on this series featuring six community leaders from right here in Edmonton. And we've been learning so much about how communities shape who we are. True. We've heard great conversations with Paul Bellows, Nasra Adim, Linda Duncan, Aaron Paquette, and Dave Mowat. And this series is closing on a very special guest, Dr. Patricia Makokas. So let's turn it over to Hunter to learn a little bit more. Tanse, Hello. Welcome to It Takes a Community, a well-endowed podcast series about inspirational leaders and the communities of people, places, and ideas that have supported them along the way. I'm your host, Hunter Cardinal, and from a young age, I was taught that my people, the Nehiao, or Cree people, have always understood ourselves as bound together in a vast web of interconnectedness. As my career as an actor and storyteller developed, I began to cross paths with more and more incredibly accomplished people. And when asked, almost every single person time and again echoed the voices of my elders in crediting their successes to their networks of support. This podcast is my own quest to explore what it means to succeed and support each other in succeeding in an inherently interconnected world and learn how it truly does take a community. Our guest this month is the extraordinary Dr. Pat Makokis, an elder and knowledge keeper from the Satellite Cree Nation who some of you may recognize from her work on the documentary Treaty Talk, as well as her leadership role in the Walk for Common Ground initiative, among many others. Though I'd been aware of Dr. Makokis for a while, I first put her face to her name when I watched the Treaty Talk documentary earlier this year. I remember being so excited to hear about how her views on treaty, allyship, and being and becoming Indigenous so closely mirrored my own. So I reached out to her. In the conversation you're about to hear, Dr. Makoka shares her personal journey of connecting with culture, being asked to take on teaching roles, and reaching out to her allies in order to build a better future for her grandson, Ateo. I left the conversation feeling almost as if there was now a gentle hand on my back encouraging me to continue my own learning and walk taller and gentler while I do so. Hope you enjoy. I mean, just starting off, like you, you're, you're so dedicated to the community. You're so um, grounded and rooted strongly in the values and and. I'm curious, like, where did that begin for you? Was that always a thing? Where did it start? Was there ever a time where you didn't rem- know that? Like, because I remember you were talking that you grew up in in uh, in BC. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, when you're asking me about values, I think that at a very early age, my parents um, 
worked extremely hard. They left Alberta and they left uh, for employment. And so I have um, five siblings, four remaining, and myself. And we grew up in the logging industry. And Hmm. my parents worked extremely hard. I come from a very poor family. Um, However, my parents were hardworking folks. And as such, my brothers and I uh, grew up recognizing uh, the importance of hard work, Hmm. the importance of uh, believing in yourself, and living by values. And I'll give you um, an example. I remember when I was about, I think it was about maybe 10 or 11. Oh, yeah. That's a good time. Yeah, I was playing with rocks. (laughs) And I loved rocks, right? Rocks are our relatives. (laughs) And I was playing with them, and I threw a rock up in the air, and it hit the windshield of a vehicle. And so honestly, being honest, I went home and I told my parents. And my father made me... Um, pay for that windshield. It was a neighbor's windshield, and I was already babysitting and working, so I was responsible for p- paying that back. And I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten the value of hard work, the value of living your truth and being responsible for your actions. And throughout my life, I learned lessons that way. So they started in childhood. Wow. That is, um, I don't think I would have done that. When I, I would have been like, it was crazy. The stone fell out of nowhere, hit, I, and I was standing. I'm concerned, right? Because what about us, right? That's incredible. And did you find yourself um, uh, immersed in um, ceremony at the time, or is that some? Did that come later? It came later. Ceremony, I grew up on the land. I have to say that. So that relationship to the land as a child was really always a part of who I am and my brothers. We grew up in northern BC. Um, The bush or the land was our backyard. So we grew up with moose, with bears, with blueberries, huckleberries, raspberries. We would pick berries by five gallons as a child and and really I can remember going out and climbing over logs and uh, so forth so that spiritual connectedness to me as a child it was deeply instilled in me for the love of the land um, and for this relationship that that I had with the animals with the berries um, with the land now in terms of ceremony that part of the spiritual connectedness didn't come until I was probably in my 30s when, again, you know, this journey of life and the lifelong learning um, is a continuous process. So I had worked at Blue Quills, gone to school there, and I was searching as part of this healing journey that we are all on. um, In that search, I started to become very involved with ceremony, with the late Mike Steinhauer, the late George Breton, uh, the late Dr. Vincent Steinhauer, his sister, Dr. Diana Steinhauer. These were folks that really impacted my life significantly, and I I always give them credit, uh, as well as my own immediate family, in terms of what I've learned. I started fasting. When I started fasting, I 
it was a, it's been a journey, a lovely journey of continuous learning about myself, who I am as a Cree woman, my relationship to the land, my relationship to the winged ones, the four-leggeds, those that walk, those that crawl. And where I really became so deeply um, ingrained or embedded in that relationship was when I started fasting. Hmm. When I fasted quietly on the land by myself with others, with other women, with other men, with uh, ceremonial holders. But that introspection started with me, um, the quiet time to think about my life, what I wanted, what I had had to that point, and what I was going to do, continue to do in terms of serving our community and the love of our community, because really, it is a deep love. It's a love um, for the community and wanting to see transformative change. When you were first learning how to fast, did you find that that was um, uh, a difficult process? Because for me, like, uh, you know, smudging, like I, I, I committed one day to, to smudge like twice a day. And, right. I, and I found when I first started, I was like, my thoughts were all over the place. I would get distracted and I was like, I am not the best <laughs> Cree <laughs> right now. I am all over the map. Um, what was that like when you were first starting? Because that was at a very important time as well in our people's history. Right, yeah. right. Um, it wasn't hard for me uh, simply because my family had left Alberta, so I hadn't, um, I didn't have the impact of churches in my life. So... When I decided to fast, I know that others would have been critical of um, thinking that that was a good path to go down. But for me, it was the right path. And it, was, um, it wasn't difficult at all. Because I think what it allowed me to do was to quiet my life. It was because I was working really hard to help our community. The time to go onto the land and be quiet and that's introspection. It was a calming time for myself when I could think about who I was, my connectedness to everything, and I could slow my life down. I could slow down, um, really think about the gifts that I've been loaned, um, what creator is the way that I am just a tiny speck in time mm -hmm. in terms of who we are all, what we are and who we are, um, to do the work that we're all invited to do in terms of this collective lift of helping our community. So it really wasn't. Mm. It wasn't a difficult time. And what it also did was it allowed my children to start to look because as I started to fast and go down that path with really gentle, kind, loving people that were helping me. Um, then my daughter, Janice, started to fast. Then my son, James, started to fast. And my husband was always at the ceremonies as we were out on the land. So it's really, for us, it's been a, a family um, journey. And now my little grandson, Adeo, you know, mm -hmm. Adeo is four. And he can sing. He, he uses the drum. 
Um, he's gone to sweats. He's he understands like his the importance for him to be there, and and the drum really calms him. You know, he was in the Sundance, and he could sit with the men when they were drumming and singing, and he can hold the rhythm of the drum at four years old. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Yeah, and the men were surprised, too, to see him. Oh, yeah, yeah, one-upping him, yeah. yeah. That, you know, you touch on something that I've been starting to realize in myself a little bit more lately is, and, and, and others as well, I think at this time and, and probably most likely at, at that time as well, um, there's such a strong sense of anger that really does contrast with these old teachings of kindness and generosity and warmth. And, you know, we, I, can, I can look and be like, oh, these people are, are, are really mad. You know, we need to be using these teachings. But, you know, lately I've been seeing it even in myself that there is something very, and it's an old thing about myself too, of like there is a deep anger. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there is like that that voice in my head that comes out and it's like quite, quite bitter and it's quite judgmental of myself, of others. I, did you ever find, what is that? Help me. <laughs> okay, well, uh, you know, I think this journey, and it, like I say, it's a lifelong journey. I experience that anger as well. So that coming to that realization of the colonial history in this country was um, a a deeply impactful time in my life because I was doing my uh, master's and my doctorate degree, and that was close to 25 years ago. So it was after the Blue Quills takeover, after the, the protest and the sit-in from the Catholic Church and saying, the Indigenous people saying, we can do no less and no worse than what's been done. We want to run this school. We want our own people running it and so forth. So doing the bachelor's degree at Blue Quills, but then going on to do a master's and a doctorate. And so when I went to work on my doctorate degree. At that time, I was a school principal, and I was working with our children from across this country. And as I worked with our children from across the country, what I saw was our young people were suffering with addiction, they were suffering with trauma, they were suffering with a deep pain around um, what I now have come to understand as historic trauma and intergenerational impacts. And so in that process of doing my own doctorate, then I had to go back and look at my own genogram, look at my own family, take a look at what had happened in my family. And when I did that genogram, I cried. I cried because I could understand what had happened in my family, uh, my father and his anger. um, And In that whole process, I then started to really understand colonization in this country. And my doctorate explored why First Nation students were dropping out of high school. So what I use is a metaphor of the iceberg. So the children, the high school students that I was working with, I put them at the top of that iceberg. And then in order to understand colonization 
and everything that is continuing to roll out in this country, I then had to look at all the things that were below the iceberg. What impacted Indigenous students from creating success in high school? Because I truly believe that our young people have the resilience and the capacity to do uh, well in school. And so that was how the exploration started for me because I had to, I looked at those, at the students, but I had to look at myself. And then there was a lot of anger yeah. because, of course, I'm coming to terms with the colonial history, um, the oppression, the um, Johnny McDonald, Duncan Campbell Scott, these folks that were impacting um, history in this country and who were putting legislation in place that continues to help, um, impact our people. And so that it was a process of feeling that anger looking at my family but thank goodness I you know being in ceremony uh, the elders and them always teaching us about practicing creator's laws is what helped me to walk through that um, and I have to say even to this day there's times that that I, I get angry and I have to be mindful of of that because when I look at our people and how we continue to suffer. You know, the homelessness, the poverty, the disparity, the women, um, the violence, uh, the addictions. And despite all of that, you know, I, I strongly believe that part of the answer lies in us coming to figure out our own identity, our own um, place in ceremony and how we are loaned our lives to to be part of service. And that's really, as a family, that's what my family is, is on that path. And it's not easy. No, it's not. And like that, you're, you're talking about so many things. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. I'm definitely not alone. One of the things that I'm curious about is what are some of the, I don't know, ideas, mental models, stories that you use to keep you always in that place of, of reminding yourself that you're supposed to be of service. Because I find oftentimes I forget about that and I start, you know, doing things just for me in that short moment. Um, what do you do? That's a really good ask. What do I do? I think um, one of the things that I feel like I'm really running right now, I'm literally running every day, and it's because I've been blessed with a grandchild. I have one grandchild. And I look at Ateo, and he's this, you know, this handsome little Cree boy with long hair and braids <laughs> and loves the drum and loves the rattle. And I look at him, and I also see the side of Ateo where he looks around and he doesn't see himself. He sees other children, but he doesn't see, for example, uh, many little boys with long hair. So he starts to question, well, Cookham, you know, I don't want to take my hat off because I, I don't want people to see my hair. Mm. And what that brings up is this sense of shame, um, this sense that to fit in, even at four, he has to look like the other children. And so what that 
will roll out into if my family isn't continuously re um, empowering him and letting him know that he is a handsome little Cree boy and his uncles have long hair. You know, there are other men that we know who have long hair and how important that long hair is because there are so many places and spaces that our people continue to be marginalized, oppressed, and face overt and, you know, racism uh, every day. And in that process, I look at Ateo and I look at all the other Ateos that we all have, and I want him to have a better life than what we've all experienced because we all have our own stories of racism and oppression and how we've been othered in so many places and spaces. And so right now I see part of that work through the treaty work in the treaty work that we're doing, and there's a a whole team of us. Um, We're coming together. We're trying really hard to help our white and our red and our yellow and our black family members to understand those treaties. What were the treaties that our ancestors sat, when they sat, when they met our relatives who came here on the boat What was that experience like? Because history in this country doesn't depict that. It doesn't allow us to understand that at some point in the past, our relatives sat together and they had conversations that were brilliant conversations, I would imagine, Mm -hmm. that have brought us to this place. And in these altering worldviews, What's happened is those the school system has not privileged Indigenous ways. It hasn't privileged our knowledge. So uh, whether we want to agree or not, we've all been indoctrinated into Western education. And in that process, it's left a deep part of uh, history in this country that in this time of... Um, truth and reconciliation, as people do say, um, it's a hard place to be in because for most people, our own included, we're only starting to come to terms with um, this oppressive history, although every day many of our people suffer on the streets and not even on the streets. You know, in different places in the workplace, people, our people suffer from racism. So we have a lot of work to do around um, uh, improving this situation. And, you know, for me, it's, it's remembering that. And if we do the treaty work together and we, I think of the little ones, then it is with hope that our future will be different. I remember I... Um this is very early on in, in my journey, um, but I was like, I, I want to. Everyone's talking about treaty rights and our rights as Indigenous peoples. I want to. I'm going to read the treaty, and then I read the treaty, and I was like, this is the most boring document ever. 
I got a nosebleed. I didn't understand <laughs> 90% of it. And I was like, what, what, the, where's the, where's the, the medicine? And, and like, what, what, where is this? Like, what, where are the rights? I don't right, get it. And right. I, and I, and I asked my dad and, and I was like, where, where do I go to read about, you know, our treaty rights? And he was like, uh, Richard T. Price. Right. And, and, uh, and the spirit of, the spirit and intent of our Alberta Indian treaties. And I started reading about this incredible other story right. that's not talked about, right. the other diametrically opposed right. view of treaty. Right. For you, what was that moment that led you to start that journey of understanding what treaty is? You know, um, I, I have to give credit to the Steinhauer family, Dr. Diana and the late Dr. Vincent, and, you know, Sharon Venn and um, your uncle. You know, there are folks that have been doing this work forever. And I'm really a baby in kindergarten when it comes to this part of this work. Um, so my way of helping in very minimal way compared to these folks that led the way is to help with this walk and talk, this treaty walk and talk. And I think if if we can get grassroots people to start to think about their own history, think about how we all got to be on the land, because at some point in the past, and, and the late uh, Dr. Steinhauer, Vincent, you know, ha- had said, you know, at one point in our history, we were all tribal people. You know, we were all people of the land, but we've come so far away from forgetting that we are a part of the land that when I think, for example, of those Indigenous leaders who would have sat talking and um, be at those pipe ceremonies, it was the interconnectedness that we have to the land and our responsibility for our mother who gives us life, um, the women in the relationships to um, children and our children being loaned to us from Creator, all of these things come together in an, a worldview that doesn't speak through seed and surrender. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when Ateya, my little grandson, <laughs> talks about Kukum, you know, the trees are our brother, Kukum. The ants and the spiders, they're our relatives. That's, I think, the language that our people would have been speaking, but they would have been speaking it in Cree and other uh, languages um, that connected them, this holistic interconnectedness to the land and the beings. And it's hard to imagine when one talks about seed and surrender, that our people were speaking the same language because that would never have been the language and they would not have given up their mother to say, yes, you can you can have our mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How yeah. do you give your mother up? You might share, right? Because our, we're called to share. We're called to be kind, to be honest um, in those teachings, you know, and... But um, the worldviews have so um, been so opposite, like you've you've noted, that they've caused such um, diverse split in the thinking and the living and the way that we don't relate to each other. Hmm. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I find really interesting. I'm starting to, to, to notice it now. I, I didn't expect it when it first happened, but 
the lateral violence right. within the communities is like so brutal. Like you have people who are trying to make things and do great work. And then you have people who they seem to be so mad that they're not listening anymore. And it's almost like they're, I don't, I don't know. It's like they're, sometimes I would, equ- I would equate it to like, they're the, the walking wounded. They're people who are just very mad and, and they can, um, they can use that anger and they can leverage the political climate that we have of call out culture of publicly shaming people right. who are misstepping you know, as if, you know, you could shame someone enough and they'll do the right thing. That definitely works on an individual level. Um, how do you deal with with that as a reality? Oh, my goodness. Hunter, <laughs> you're asking uh, so many good questions. <laughs> We're going to solve it right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, the lateral violence is really hard to um, understand. However, uh, that's the one side of it. But the other side of it is when when we start to roll out and understand our history and our oppression in this country and the trauma that our people are experiencing, then we can understand the lateral violence. And most recently, I, I made a decision that I was going to develop a course and teach a course on leadership And that course is called Indigenous Leadership from Transaction to Transformation because in it, what one of the things that I've consciously made a choice to discuss was lateral violence. Because in discussing lateral violence, which has become normalized, sad to say, um, we have to help our own people understand oppression. We have to help them understand patriarchy. We have to help them understand and reposition women's place in our communities because we've learned so well from um, a system that's not ours. I remember the late Veronica Morin, uh, who also taught at Blue Quills, she would always ask the question when there was a ceremony, a pipe ceremony. She would say, where's the woman's pipe? Because um, in that process, sometimes what's happened is our own men in learning about patriarchy and practicing what they think is leadership have forgotten those traditional ways of of a balanced community of men and women working together. Yes, the men may have been the speakers, but they didn't make those decisions without the women. And, you know, that's the part because now, sometimes sad, we have our own political folks that lead in a way that isn't ours, and they exclude our own people. They exclude our women. They exclude the young people. They talk about um, the youth are our future. The youth are what we're doing this work for. While at the same time, um, getting caught up in the government, the government's intention of divide and conquer. And that's the bigger challenge that all of us have to remember is that we're really administering our own poverty now. And, you know, the government has handed it over. And if we're not mindful of how we should be leading, which is through ceremonial leadership, not this um, Indian Act 
uh, I'll uh, have a chief and council, but really a whole community coming together, then it's, it's, um, it's understandable that we would be experiencing lateral violence because that system creates these power structures, positional power, and folks can easily get caught up in, um, well, I'm the chief or I'm the counselor and I'm making the decision without really remembering what, um, how we are to lead. And so we end up in this system of that isn't our own and um, it creates further oppression within our own community so that we have been oppressed and then we turn around unintentionally and oppress our own people. And I don't really believe that if we understood and we stood grounded in um, in Indigenous worldview and the teachings that um, those that had and those that continue to share, if we practiced that, then we could... Uh, significantly transform our nations. And what's exciting about your work with um, with treaty, especially um, the treaty talk, uh, treaty talks documentary that that you um, you you created and you help lead, is we're starting to look at how we can not only empower ourselves as Indigenous peoples, but also the other part of the treaty relationship with our non-Indigenous um, siblings as well. Right. For you, what was that moment where you? You, you saw that need of empowering our, our allies to help us. Because, like, I think that for me, you know, there's um, um, my grandfather, and this is like a, a very northern um, idea, and a lot of people know it, is just you have to be strong like two people. And for the longest time, I was like, yeah, me, the individual, I have to be strong like two people. And I was like, I, I just was talking one day to my sister who, often gets weird messages like this from me all the time. Um, But I was like, I actually think that that's a pretty Western way of looking at what that could mean of like, it's very focused on the individual and it could be that, but also what if it also includes that, that we have to be strong, like two people and that we don't necessarily have to be that one, but we can also use our allies. Right. When did you start focusing on, the other and, and the the ally and, and that's um, that's a good question as well and I need to give credit to uh, some dear colleagues that I've had over the years um, Dr. Faye Fletcher uh, the dean and the faculty of extension um, my one of my mentors Dr. Diana Steinhauer and again her late brother because those folks um, help me to. Uh, believe that this work that we are to do is much greater than ourselves. In fact, Dr. Diana would say, Pat, we shouldn't be talking about races. We should be talking about families. And one of the most transformative and impactful experiences I had recently was in the summer of 2017. I went and walked with a group of white family members. So our white relatives who have taken it upon themselves to understand the treaties, to understand truth and reconciliation, what that is, uh, the United Nations rights of Indigenous peoples, and so forth. So as an avid walker, 
I um, found out from my daughter that there was this walk in Ontario, and these white family members were going to walk from uh, Kitchener to Ottawa, which is 300 miles. So I got on a plane, and I went, and I walked 150 miles with them. And truthfully, that was one of the most impactful walks I have ever done in my life. I've done a lot of walking. I've walked in Europe. I've walked many, many walks. But that one deeply impacted me. It touched my heart to see white family members stepping in and stepping up to say, we have a responsibility to learn this history. We have a responsibility to educate our own people and um, there was an elder that, he was 84, his name was Henry, and I walked with Henry, and Henry was a former minister in a church, and he, he said, it was the churches who got us into, it, into this, and it's the churches that have to get us out of this. And he said, some people say that this is political. And he said, it isn't political. What it is, it's a fact of us having to understand our history in this country and understanding, taking it upon ourselves to understand Indigenous people's perspective in this country. And that was profound for me. When I walked with white family members who were educating other white people, for 150 miles, and we would sit in churches at night, and they would um, talk about Indigenous peoples and what they, as white people, have to do to understand this history. I was deeply impacted by that, because my experience has been about our people continuing to experience racism and being uh, seen as, you know, those lazy Indians um, and so forth. And it was, I cried. I literally cried when I saw these people stepping in and stepping up. So when I came home, I went to visit Vincent and Diana, and I asked them, could we invite our white family members from the East, who I knew, I knew none of these folks, but we quickly became friends. And then um, we did a teepee talk. We did, Diana and Vincent did the teachings, the oral teachings on um, treaties. And we picked uh, folks from locally from Saddle Lake and St. Paul and our new friends from the East. And that was how we, we did uh, the treaty talk film. And then, again, it kind of um, mushroomed from there. It kind of, I started talking to other friends. And those friends are social activists as well. And they said, hey, Pat, why, what if we do a walk? What if we do one from Edmonton to Calgary? What if we do one from St. Paul to North Battleford? In the end, we decided we would walk and talk from Edmonton to Calgary. Uh, May 31st to June 14th, and we're going to use the same um, process as was used in the East. So we've got churches on side, the Anglican Church, United Church, the Mennonite community, and others, uh, some of the colleges and universities. And we're going to be 30 to 40 uh, core walkers, but we're inviting day walkers. And in that process, it's a simple conversation around how we are all related.
and how we are all responsible for the land and how we have to figure um, our connectedness to that land. Because one of the greatest teachers for me around how important the land is was when I fasted, when I didn't have water or food for four days and four nights. And so when you don't drink, for example, you can do without the food, but you can't do without the water. And at this point in time, if we don't start teaching our young people and our other relatives, you know, in the other communities about this importance, then we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what will our future be? What will our collective future be if we don't step in and start helping each other? Because the education system has indoctrinated us um, into, you know, people not knowing anything about Native people. And it's, a, it's painful when I think of all the young people that if we don't change this ship around, how much more uh, will our people suffer around um, racism and oppression. You know, a, a good example around privilege and entitlement and discrimination and stereotypes is, you know, I, I had this ring. This is a little foolish story, but I'm going to share it. Oh, yeah, go for it. I'm going to share this. Do it. <laughs> so I had an aunt who passed away, and they never had children, her and my uncle, and so my husband and I were probably closest to uh, the children that they never had. And she gave me a ring, and it had a whole bunch of diamonds on it. It has about 20 little diamonds, and I'm, I'm not a person to wear jewelry. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go get this ring appraised. And why is it that I have a doctor's degree, I've worked all my life, and yet because of our experiences, I was fearful to walk into a jewelry store with that ring because there's some assumptions. I'm a Native woman. Um, we're, we live with these stereotypes, so when I would walk into that jewelry store to ask to have it appraised, that they would ask me where I got that ring from. And it's tragic so ironically, here I was uh, running a program, and I took my admin support, who is a white family member, with me. So that I took a picture of the ring, I took her with me, because I knew exactly what would happen. And it's 2019. Why do we have to live with that type of experience when we walk into facilities? And it's sad. It's really sad because some of our relatives don't know what those experiences are for us. You know, my son is a physician. He has long hair. When he was a resident and in the hospital... One of the staff in the hospital um, accused him of being a janitor when he was going in to go check on a patient. He was a janitor. And so we live with these assumptions all the time that um, we don't work, and if we do work, then we're right doing those frontline sector jobs, which are very important jobs to all who do them. 
but there's some pretty embedded unconscious thinking around who we are and where we position. And that's got to stop. It's absolutely got to stop. And how I see that happening is in a good, kind, loving way. You know, if we bring our white, our red, our black, and our yellow family members together and to learn some teachings together and spend time together in unpacking this history and rebuilding um, our teachings, because our teachings are, as you know, they're around kindness and love. And how is it that when we walk into a store that we still experience what we do? You know, we need to ask ourselves that. Why does that happen in 2019? So ally work is critical work. It's absolutely critical for all of us. Why do you think that there's such... Because for me, what I found when I started looking into treaty and started talking with some Indigenous people as well about treaty, it seems like there's a big gap in knowledge about that work, that idea, those concepts, especially like this idea of um, a parallel relationship right. between two nations right. um, where we're going down the river of life. You know, if we use that two row wampa metaphor right. of uh, we have um, non-Indigenous people in the ship, we have Indigenous people in their canoe. Mm-hmm. It seems like there is a real block of that we we are separate and or rather we should be separate i I would argue sometimes that we're pretty well in their ship right now um but that we're we have separate endpoints and separate futures why is that such a big block do you think that's you know you're asking some really good questions and hard questions that there are no really (laughs) there are no really good answers on but uh, (laughs) yes i'll give you another story So a while back, um, I was asked if I would go and talk to retired professors about ally work. So a dear colleague of mine, a former colleague, um, asked me, Pat, would you come and could we go and talk to these retired professors? She was retired as well. And talk about the importance of allies. So as we talked... I talked about the importance again of the land and how we perceive the land because we perceive the land as our mother and our responsibility to live on and respect and um, be keepers of and look after this relationship that we have. As we talked in this circle, um, there was this older man a white family member who, as I was talking about this connectedness and this relationship and how we see the land, the second go-round of the circle, he said, I got it wrong. I have to go back and I have to take my grandson to the land because I told him, that when we came here, we worked really hard and we moved off the land and into the city. So we were better than the land because now, yes, we, we worked hard. However, we moved into an urban setting and we were doing this and that. 
But he said, I'm wrong. I'm wrong because we are the land. And it goes back to the societies and capitalism and um, money and displacement and so many complex things that I am not an expert on. But what I do know is that the land must sustain all of us. And we have to figure that relationship out. How are we teaching our children, for example, about where their food comes from? Because it doesn't come from Sobeys. And so how are we connecting them to the, the land, to food, to water, to the environment? Because those worldviews are so significantly different. And they, uh, this, this sense that things are going to last forever have to be things that we have to really look within ourselves and maybe the answer to that is go sit on the land by yourself for a while with no food and no water and then come out of that after four days and ask yourself just how precious food is and how precious water is and where it comes from. Because it's uh, there, these, <laughs> these worldviews are so diverse and only one has been privileged and that has caused us challenges. How do you not lose yourself while being in a system that is constantly trying to include you, indoctrinate you, have you be a part of the system? And how do you, because for me, what I find is I, I desperately do want to fit in. And it's very hard to kind of be in a place where, you know, I have a lot of privilege being a man or <laughs> seeming like I'm a man, um, uh, being able-bodied, being cisgendered. Um, there's a lot of privileges that I have, but there's few differences that make me not fit in, mm -hmm. that I will not be let in right. to, the, to, the, to the system, to, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of coming from like theater. Um, that's my background. And, um, and I just found like it, the system really didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was really upset about that. And I, and I still find myself from time to time, uh, for most of the part, uh, most of the time, really wanting the items of status, the, the, the signs that I am finally fitting in, the things that um, uh, perhaps Munio w are told that they want. Right. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that? And how do you kind of be like, no, that's different? Or, or do, you, do you feel like that? You know, I... Um Again, you're asking a difficult question. And I think all my life I never fit in. I never fit in because I remember very vividly, again, when I was 12 years old, taking on my social studies teacher. He was talking about Native people. And we know what's taught in social studies when you're in grade 6 or grade 7. Really right? nuanced, right. you know, <laughs> thorough. Yeah, yeah. So I remember standing up in my class and taking on and confronting this male white man to tell him he was wrong about what he was saying about Native people. And I've never fit in, I don't think. And then when I went to Blue Quills, Blue Quills was a place of where those um, folks before us fought, right? They fought the fight. And this was the early 70s when they were fighting and saying, we're going to take the school over. We're going to run it. 
So that kind of thinking has always been in my, I think it's in my being. You know, as a child growing up, it was instilled in me, values and hard work. And then it just went on into um, when I went to post-secondary. And so I, when I came, this last job that I had uh, at the university, I give credit to this university for helping me to always stay grounded in who we are and privileging our worldview. Because I would joke and say, you know, I'm working in the belly of the beast. But in working in the belly of the beast, it's about bringing our knowledge system and our worldview here. Because if we want better, what we're dealing with has to change. And some of our own people would get upset with me because I talked about being in the belly of the beast and being mindful about indoctrination. Be careful because we have come into these systems to get this education, to come home and help our own people. But we must always be grounded in knowing that we have to help our own people, to lift up and take our responsibilities for those who did before us because they walked that path for us. We're the next generation. Our children are the next, and now my grandchildren will are coming. So that, that sense of being indoctrinated in our way of thinking and sharing um, has helped me because at times, in fact, in this last class I was teaching on leadership, I told the students, because we were talking about lateral violence, and I said, remember, remember when we are helping our community to understand this lateral violence, where it comes from, and that we're caught. We're caught with our leaders trying to do good work, but they're caught in systems and structures that aren't ours, and they are called to do work in a certain way there. So if they're not being mindful and working from that spiritual ceremonial side, we who ask them to explain to us how they're leading, we then become considered troublemakers, and we're not troublemakers, we're truth-tellers. Because you're traversing two worlds and you're traversing being mindful of what this Western system does if we're not mindful and staying planted in our own community. It will eat us up and spit us out. And if we're not careful to stay grounded here in our own ways and what our relatives have fought for and what now sits on our shoulders we will get sucked up and we could easily um, be attracted to things that really aren't who we are or what we're supposed to be doing. And that's, that's the, um, the important thing, you know, because I remember I was using a book on, uh, that was written by an Indigenous author in one of the leadership classes that I taught at Blue Quills. And this young person was in his community, and he kept saying, I, I, I. And when he finished talking, the elder said, Grandson, I noticed that you said I, but it was we who sent you to school. 
and we are therefore reminding us of to stay planted in our community, stay planted in knowing that we are servants of our people. That's our job. And when I say servants of our people, I am not talking or implying that we are slaves to being um, workers on the front line. What I am saying is we are servants to practice our own ways of knowing and knowing that, that we traverse these two worlds with the deepest of love and commitment to serve our own people. And as we do that work, we bring our allies with us. And when we bring our allies with us, their hearts are transformed as well. I've seen it so many times when they, the late George Benton used to say, the greatest journey we have to make is from our head to our heart. And in all the courses that I've taught where we're privileging Indigenous knowledge alongside Western knowledge, our other relatives from the other families, when they come in and they learn some of our worldview, they change. And as they change, they can see the benefits to a transformative society that is more about humankind versus being an individual and using individualism at the expense of knowing we have collective responsibilities. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess my last question is, um, so 1973, Redbone came out with Come and Get Your Love. Now, we just wrote a play um, called Lake of the Strangers, which we had a lot of generous help from the Edmonton Community Foundation um, to put it on, and a lot of our support from from our allies and, and people in the community who are giving us the space to tell not only my, my story and my sister's story, but our family's story and our people's story. Um, <laughs> when I first saw Redbone and I saw four Indigenous dudes just doing their thing, I was so stoked to see right, that, right. and and it was really cool because it was it, it was so exciting to see these people doing what they are doing yes. fully as they are, mm-hmm. and I felt so proud. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if you had moments like that <laughs> at all, or <laughs> um, I can't I can't really say that you know at at my age that I've had a whole bunch of role models that were actively there, but I can, again, go back to my time at Blue Quills and being deeply, deeply impacted by those leaders of that time. And they led in such a way with such love and commitment. And I do see that. I see that in folks like um, Dr. Diana Steinhauer and her brother, the late Vincent. You know, they were that second generation And so even though they're younger than me, they were role models for me. And I'm always grateful to that family because, you know, I, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and I'm baby in kindergarten when it comes to figuring out what it is to be Cree, what it is to be Indigenous, and to remember, um, you know, the collective lift work that we all have to do. Those were some of the role models and my family. You know, I have to give credit to my parents 
who really worked hard. I was fortunate to have a grandmother and a mother who were excellent role models for me. I saw them um, do amazing things. And my mother still continues to do amazing things. And um, credit has to go where credit is due, you know, to our parents and to our relatives, our, our bigger extended family, wherever we find those folks that um, resonate for us and that we find a part of ourself or a part of what we want to be in a, in a better uh, human being, because humankind will, will be better for it. When we can find those folks and find that spark, that spark that keeps burning in our heart and this big burn in our belly that keeps us going to know that I have responsibilities until the creator takes me to the next plane that I have responsibilities to do everything I can to make life better for all those little ones counting on us. Those that sit in that rainbow waiting, you know, who are choosing to come here. You know, what are we doing for them? What are we doing for all the little ateos? Because it's got to be different. It's got to be better. Thank you. That's amazing. Thank <laughs> you. And if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing and how to support you, what can they do? Well, I think on the Treaty Talks, go and Google uh, treatytalks.com. You know, the film is there. It's free. It's Use amazing. it. <laughs> Use it. Come and learn because we are all related and we must change the narrative. We must. The time is now. Thank you. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Thanks so much to Hunter and Jacqueline Cardinal for bringing us that wonderful conversation. And thanks to Dr. Patricia Makokas for sharing her time and inviting us to continue learning together. If you want to learn more about Treaty 6 and Dr. Makokis, head on over to our show notes. We found some great resources that we think you'll like. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means a lot to us. And if you like the show, share it with your friends. All of them. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us, and we really appreciate your feedback. And you can also visit us on Facebook. That's where you can share your thoughts with us and check out photos from the show. Thanks again for spending your time with us. We've been your hosts, Elizabeth Bonkink and Andrew Paul. Until, Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation and is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. The show is edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at the ECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well Endowed.